Zurich Change for Choice. Every single child in this state and this nation grows up with dreams. Public or private school, charter, even homeschool. And so today we empower parents and children to decide the education that best fits their needs. Every family gets the choice and a way to pay. Florida House Speaker Paul Renner with us live. South Florida's only new congressman. I'm ready to do the people's work. I'm, I'm willing to work across the aisle. From a state career in the spotlight, can Jared Moskowitz export bipartisanship to D.C.? Migrant surge, manpower surge. Is it enough to support the Florida Keys? Shame on you, City Commission. You've insulted and disrespected this community. Blowback over Miami's historic Black Beach, the plans and promises for its future. It didn't strip Black Miami of its voice. Black Miami still has a voice. It's time to pass the baton. The big news of the week and the newsmakers all live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. A packed show today and we begin with the plan for seismic change in state education and the man at the helm of that plan. The House bill filed late this week would be an historic expansion of the state school voucher program. Every student in the state, kindergartner through high school senior, becomes eligible to receive state money to go to private school or homeschool even if they choose. The bill has major support from those who back choice, leveling the financial playing field and giving options to all families. And it drew immediate blowback from those fearing the demise of public schools. School choice is a priority for Florida's new House Speaker Paul Renner. And House Speaker Paul Renner is with us this morning live. And it is so good to have you, Speaker. Great to have you on the program. Great to be with you, Glenna. And thank you for sparing some of your Sunday with us. I know that's not always so easy, but let me start with this uh, HB1. You gave it the number one bill in the House this week. Is it fair to say that this really does dismantle and rebuild the structure of school in Florida? Well, it's really an extension of what Florida has been undertaking for 25 years, which is just saying that students should go to the school that best fits their needs. And, and whatever that is, wherever that is, we have many great public schools. Uh, I was a public school student throughout my entire tenure, but some, some children uh, don't succeed in the environment where their zip code tells them they should go. And so we should have other alternatives, whether that's charter schools or home schools or private schools. And so this bill is really an extension of what we've begun so that every child gets the education that best fits their individual needs. So I want to really let our viewers hear some of the details in the plan because uh, the devil is always in the details, but I want to pick up on what you just said 25 years ago um, and shout out to Miami guy, Jeb Bush, former governor who actually started the voucher program. Um, what is in this bill sort of not only continues and builds upon that, but but builds it very differently because the voucher program typically would be for either lower income families to give them the financial wherewithal to go to a private school, send their children to private school, or uh, people with special needs, um, I guess they call it special abilities now, who, who need a different kind of schooling. And those were the kind of guardrails on the vouchers and you had to be eligible for that. And this blows that all up. There, there is no need-based eligibility requirements now, right? This is for everybody. 
Well, the two things I'm most excited about in this bill, and you mentioned uh, children with unique abilities. So think of children with autism or Down syndrome. Right now, uh, given the uh, current structure of our program, there's a wait list and, and estimates vary, but somewhere around 9,000 students who have unique abilities who are being told no. And what a terrible thing for a parent to have to be shut out of that. And so this bill, when you said blows the doors off, it, it, it lifts that wait list so that we will never again tell an autism child or a child with other unique abilities that they can't get the specialized education that they need. And I'm super excited about that aspect of the bill. But the other part of it is what's called an ESA, an educational savings account. So currently in our program, for those that do not have unique abilities, you can only pay for tuition, but you can't customize that any further. We wanna be able to say that, look, if you need to have a uh, in-home tutor, which could be a public school teacher that comes in your home to help your child with math or reading, you can use this account in more customizable ways. And I think that will empower both parents and students, as well as their teachers and school advisors to make sure that every child gets a customized education. And so that ESA component is new. Now it's already there in place for the unique ability students, but it's not for the other students who enjoy this program. Okay, and so- And I should say, you know, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I want to, the ESA component, could you sort of compare that to uh, a health savings account or a, a flex medical account where, where you get this pot of money to spend on, on certain things pertaining to education? W would that be a fair comparison? Uh I think that's a great comparison. What we've done that's a little bit different some of some of the other states who have allowed it for uniforms and things that have an educational that are related to education. We've restricted it to things that are purely uh, directly related to education. So if you need to pay for an online course or again, a home, home in-home tutor, that type of thing would now be uh, allowed under this new bill if it's passed. So there are questions, oh, so many questions, on, on capacity and are there enough private schools? And, but really the essential question is, because you, you know, you, you've seen the blowback, you've seen the concern, you've seen the fear of, about the demise of public education and public schools. So, Mr. Speaker, what, with all of this choice, and we'll go into more of the detail, but with all of this choice, who do you expect, which families, what kind of families would you expect would choose to remain in their neighborhood's public schools. Do you, do you see that happening? Well, absolutely, it's happening today. So our current cap is over $100,000 for a family of four, but the majority of students that use our program make their families make less than $40,000 a year and 75% come from minority communities. So there are many, many people that are very happy with their public schools. As I mentioned, I, I went through K through 12. I think I turned out okay. My mom was a public school teacher. There's many great public schools. It's gonna be a good year for public schools in the legislature on some other bills we'll be working on and things we'll be funding. So many people will stay just where they are, as they are today with that um, pretty elevated cap. And so I think uh, those concerns are really overwrought. We've spent more money uh, devoted to all forms of public education in the time that I've been in the legislature, and I expect that to continue again this year. Would you say that this might be a spur to make public schools and the administrators of those public schools um, feel like they need to be a bit more competitive to to win that choice? That's exactly right. And the power of choice is just that. 
you know, imagine uh, that you're told that you're going to go out and shop for a car, but you can only shop on the car lot that's nearest to your home, the one your, your zip code tells you you can attend. And if you don't like it, say that's a Ford uh, dealership, and you don't like what you see there, you can't leave. You can't go to Chevy or GMC or or any or Toyota. You can't go anywhere. You're stuck there. That's the system that we inherited with a monopoly, and that just doesn't lead to good results. And so choice over the last 25 years, and you mentioned the transformational path that Governor Jeb Bush put us on 25 years ago, has made our public schools better. We went from being at the bottom of the barrel to third in the nation in our public schools. I'm proud of our public schools, and we want to make sure we give them every resource to succeed. But you're absolutely right, Glenna, that this choice program, and this will just build on that, will make everyone better. Because if you don't like it, you have not only an entrance, but you also have an exit to leave that school if they don't meet your child's needs. And I think that's the power of what we're about to do. So I want to, part of um, the Bush plan uh, for the past 25 years was built in accountability measures. And I want to talk to you a little bit about accountability and what's there and the financial component of all this. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Thank you. With Florida House Speaker Paul Renner uh, talking about the priority bill filed this week, HB1, which is going to be a vast expansion of the school voucher program. Universal choice is what people in Tallahassee are calling it right now. Mr. Speaker, I want to talk a little bit about um, sort of the guide rails and guidelines for this universal choice where families could choose public school or private school or even homeschool, parochial schools. There doesn't seem to be really a limit on who does this education. So I wonder if you would frame for us the accountability measures. Um, you know, we like to think that everybody acts on good faith and we in this business in particular know that's not always the case. So what are the, are the guardrails in place for the spending of money, where it goes, who uses it, and, and that it's being spent well. Well, um, there's two major uh, components to accountability. One is regulatory, and so we, we uh, for example, require standardized testing for those that receive these scholarships and, and the like to make sure that they're progressing and succeeding in their educational pursuits. But there's also market accountability. You know, the students, as I said, many people are very happy with where they are. That's why you haven't already seen a mass exodus in the programs that we've expanded over the years. But um, you know, parents will, will look and if they go up to a place, whether it's a charter school or a private school or a virtual school, and they decide that they're not happy, they have the chance to go to yet another place to make sure that they get the best uh, education for their children. So there's both regulatory accountability, but also market accountability. And I think it's important to note that we're not operating or speculating in a vacuum here. We've had this program in increasing uh, scope over the last 25 years, and it's working well. What we see in people that participate in the program is that they're more likely to go to high school, more likely to attend college and graduate from college than those like peers that stayed in the traditional public schools. And so I think that's the best indication is, does it work or not? And we're all about 
educational outcomes and rewarding those uh, schools that do well and not rewarding those schools that do not do well. And that really is driven a lot by great parents and students uh, choosing what's right, right for them. Well, no doubt we know just from covering education for so long that parental involvement is, if not the key indicator, then right up there is one of the key indicators of student success. That's people tell us in education that across the board. Mr. Speaker, the, um, so this family empowerment voucher that now everybody is available for, no need-based anymore, um, do you expect that there are families maybe who do send their children to private school now, um, and some of the private schools are not as expensive as others, some are very expensive, including someone's annual salary as tuition every year, but, but do you, how do you see that going now that there's not a need base, there's still really not so much of a level playing field when tuitions vary from school to school so much, um, you know, people or families with more resources will still be able to make choices that others could not. Is, is that valid? Yeah, and I think it's important to note that our bill prioritizes low-income families. It prioritizes families with unique abilities. And it's really there that you see, as I mentioned, the majority of students on the program today, even though we have a cap that's over $100,000 today before this bill, the majority of students that participate, uh, their families make less than $40,000 a year. And and so um, it is it is the case that in um, upper income neighborhoods, you tend to have public schools that perform better. And so this is really, in my mind, about the civil rights uh, moment of our generation and making sure that we're taking care of every single child. No child should be trapped in their zip code. And, and as I said, what you're seeing in practice, we don't have to speculate, is that the majority of students that have and will take advantage of this program are in schools that may be lower income neighborhoods that are just not meeting their needs. We should be able to give that child the same God-given right to excel as a child that, that makes, uh, whose family makes a lot of money. And I'm super excited about making sure we continue down that path, especially for our children with unique abilities. The bill that's filed, it was filed um, Thursday, Wednesday night or Thursday, uh, pretty comprehensive. And some people who like to do things firsthand can go on the House website right now and, and read through it. Um, what I love is the little, what I call the cheat sheets that the House provides in the bill analysis. And that was pretty thorough. And there's something that stuck out in the bill analysis that I wanted to talk to you about. And that was, this is a quote, indeterminate fiscal analysis, unquote. So that means what about the money? We don't know right now. Does that concern you? No, this is normal. I mean, it's number for all the bills that we have that have a fiscal component. You have to, in some respect, make an estimate of how many people will take up the new opportunities that are there. And I said on the front of unique students with unique abilities, we have uh, estimates that, that range um, depending on who you're talking to. But in general, we're talking about somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 students um, that, that currently have been blocked from participating. And so there's a number you can actually attach to that. What we don't know is with the change in income caps, how many parents will take advantage of that. We know that with income caps, Caps currently over $100,000, that the vast majority of students are still coming from these lower income uh, communities. Uh, and so I would expect that to continue. But that's where we, the smart, you know, economic people get together and give us a, an estimate, a fiscal estimate, which we need, because unlike the federal government, we have a balanced budget. We do balance our budget. And we want to make sure we come in uh, with the, the amount of money we're going to devote to this, again, prioritizing 
children who are lower income, children who have unique abilities to make sure they're first in line. So how would, you're talking to a lot of families who are gonna be really interested in exploring the possibilities. Where do they start? How, how do you know where to go, what to do, what your options are? Well, there's resources out there. Our Step Up for Students program, which has been managing the hundreds of thousands of children who already participate in these choice programs, have a lot of resources. I would start there. The Department of Education can certainly help. And, uh, and if not, you can call us at the Florida House or, or the Florida Senate. We have just some great staff uh, who know these programs inside and out to help navigate that. And as I say navigate, an interesting and, and uh, exciting part of this bill is to set up choice now. Navigators. And so that will phase in over time so that a parent and a student can sit down with somebody who's an educational person uh, along with their teachers and schools and say, hey, look, here are your your um, your grades, your your scores. This is what's going on in your life and in, in your development that only parents know best. And here's some recommendations about how we might layer on to your education and further customize it through those ESA programs to make sure we're getting absolutely the best out of your education for, for your child. And even brothers and sisters learn differently. Some are good in math or good in, in our reading. And so this is really about maximizing customization, getting the most out of every single child's potential. And I'm super excited about it. House Speaker Paul Renner, it is really good to have you. I, I, sh I should say this is not a done deal yet. First committee meeting is later this week on Thursday, but uh, so much support in a majority conservative legislature. We have no doubt that this will be law by the end of May. But um, meanwhile, I hope you come back and talk with us about all kinds of things going on in Tallahassee as the year progresses. We sure do appreciate your time. I look forward to it, Glenna. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. And next, South Florida's only new member of Congress heads to D.C. with plenty of minority party experience. So what's the plan? Congressman Jared Moskowitz is live with us. This week for several Broward County members of Congress was the ceremonial one following the real one in D.C. One of those is South Florida's only new, brand new, first time congressman. But Jared Moskowitz takes his place on the Hill with a unique track record from a state career that had him in the spotlight more than a few times, which we will talk about with Congressman Jared Moskowitz here with us live here today. Mr. Congressman, welcome. Are you used to that what? title yet? Well, I got to tell you, when I walk around the Capitol in Washington, uh, it is a humbling experience. It's very surreal. You know, an office with your name on the door or being on the floor and just a couple rows behind you is Nancy Pelosi. So I, I don't think it is set in. I feel like I'm right now I'm like having the greatest internship of my life. <laughs> uh, but uh, it is uh, it, it's pretty cool. You know, for all that Congress has been turned into a circus, there's still a lot of history and respect for voters that went into the ballot box and, and sent me to be their voice uh, in the nation's capital. And congratulations sincerely to you. Um, you know, you, you've been on this program before as the director of emergency management and as a state legislator and as I think a Broward commissioner you were here, but your, your trajectory has been so interesting because you spent, what, six years in Tallahassee as a state rep, you as a pretty progressive Democrat, um, you got a lot of your Republican colleagues to vote on some pretty groundbreaking gun law. 
Uh, you had Governor Ron DeSantis, a very conservative governor, appoint you as the only Democrat in his administration. How, how are you going to take this kind of bipartisanship thing that you can do to D.C.? How do you how do you sort of transport that? Yeah, I mean, you know, my experience uh, and trajectory is definitely not how I planned it when I first got into public service. Uh, and it's not what I recommend uh, for, for other people <laughs> who are looking to go into government. Um, you know, yeah, you know, the way I approach things, Glenn, is very different than when I first got into this when I was 25 years old and got elected to a city commission as a law student. You know, I went through a horrific mass shooting in my district uh, in the city of Parkland. I saw parents you know, bury their kids. They visit those kids now at a cemetery because of the failures of what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And then obviously I was in charge of the pandemic. So you go through those really two experiences and you realize that a lot of the stuff that goes on in politics just doesn't matter. It's a lot of noise and it's performative. You know, it's everyone just trying to get on Fox or MSNBC or CNN uh, and they're saying what they think people want to hear or we'll get them clicks on social media. But it's not about passing legislation. It's not about helping people's lives. And to be quite honest, just my experience going through that, I just try to separate that out and and I'll work with anybody. I've proven that if I believe we can, you know, work together for, for the common good. And so I'm not naive. Washington is different. We get up there, we're divided into two teams. Uh, you know, there is no mingling that goes on between the two sides. We're divided. We have, you know, lunch separately. We have different basically social events in the evening, but I'm going to make an effort uh, to try to not only, you know, meet, meet people on my side of the aisle, but meet people on the other side of the aisle that are looking uh, to make progress for the American people. Yeah. So are you, I look to see, I don't see you on any committees yet. Are you on a committee yet? So yeah. because they, it took so long for them to get a speaker, um, you know, we're not just a week behind, we're a month behind because they should have picked committees a while ago. So we still don't have committees. In fact, we still don't have ratios. Yeah. Figuring out how many Democrats or Republicans will be on each committee. So but, I don't I don't yet have committee assignments. Hopefully that'll be done by the end of the month. But you are a vice chair of the gun violence prevention task force. Um, let me segue that in a in a horrible way today, right now in Los Angeles, right outside Los Angeles, there's an investigation going on of a mass shooting overnight. And here are some pictures that are just into the newsroom of that. 10 people died uh, at a what sounds like a party in a ballroom type place by a mass shooter. They were celebrating the Lunar New Year. If you, um, if the Associated Press is right, this is the fifth mass shooting this year, which is hardly three weeks old. You know, I, I remember you riveting everyone on the floor of the house after Parkland and, um, and sort of just you could hear a pin drop while you made your floor speech about why these these gun measures should be put in place. Uh, people did that across the board for you and it took a catastrophe in your hometown. F frame what you see possible in the gun violence prevention task force this year. Well, listen, uh, you know, you know, Washington last year passed the first gun violence prevention, gun control legislation in 30 years. Breaking that logjam was very important. That bill was necessary, not sufficient. You know, one, one of the things we did in Florida after uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, is we obviously invested into mental health counselors in, in our high schools and school resource officers in all of our schools. Uh, but we raised the age to 21 to buy a gun, which uh, we felt would be instrumental in preventing 
um, or I should say reducing uh, mass shootings. So we, you know, we'll have to see all the details that come out of this. Obviously, it's another horrific event uh, that we see too often in this country. We're becoming desensitized where, you know, this would be national news for days and days. And now, you know, you don't even necessarily get a breaking news when 10 people go to an event and don't go home. You know, that's 10 families that are broken. Uh, that's, you know, that's 10 empty chairs at a dinner table or 10 empty bedrooms in a home. Those parents, those kids, uh, you know, are now are now broken because all they did was go out to have fun with their their friends and they were in the wrong place at the wrong time because some crazy person was able to get access to a gun too easy. And so that's where red flag laws can come into effect, you know, and, and I really do believe that that's where the conversation can center with people who, you know, are too afraid to do anything uh, on guns. I mean, I'm not interested in inhibiting people's Second Amendment rights, uh, but I think we can all agree that crazy people shouldn't have guns or guns shouldn't be so easy to get that crazy people can get them. And that's where red flag laws, which we put into place in Florida, we were like the seventh state in the nation to do that. They've been used over 9,000 times. They're dramatically supported by sheriffs around the state, Democrat and Republican. And one of the lessons that I wanna tell the folks in Washington is that here in Florida, we had a Republican House, a Republican Senate, A-plus NRA-rated members in the legislature. We had a Republican governor. They voted for gun violence prevention to reduce gun violence, and not a single one of them lost their reelection. In fact, they were all reelected. And so this idea that we can't do anything that doesn't inhibit uh, Second Amendment rights but does protect kids and people more than we're doing today uh, without paying a political repercussion, just not true. We saw that here in Florida. And I'm hoping to tell that story in Washington. Yeah, great point. Um, before I let you go today, in the minute we have left, another breaking news today. Uh, right now, Vice President Kamala Harris is in Tallahassee. Uh, I think we have some cameras there we might be able to take either now or a bit later on the news. But she's there to mark the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And now seven months after those national protections for abortion were overturned, uh, she is going to be presenting a presidential memo today um, nationally, the Biden administration trying to make medicinal abortions um, available and accessible. I know you put out a statement on this anniversary today, too. Uh, where do you see that going nationally? Well, listen, it's, it's been a loser for the Republicans, I mean, from a political standpoint. Uh, I mean, you know, they thought they were going to have some huge red wave in the country, and they didn't. And I think partly not only was that blunted by the fact that they nominated a lot of crazy people and a lot of people voted for normal, uh, but I also think young people and women voted uh, in dramatic numbers because of the overreach of the court. I mean, here's a 50-year-old law. Every justice uh, over the last, you know, decade and a half came before the the Senate under oath and said, "Oh, it's precedent on precedent," and you know, no one's interested. They told senators in private meetings they weren't interested in in getting rid of Roe v. Wade, and they lied. They lied under oath, uh, knowing full well at the first chance that they got that they would undo that. And so, I'm very worried about you know where this where we're going as a country in this aspect. Women uh, absolutely have a right to control their own bodies. You know, I don't get it. My Republican colleagues and friends who used to be for small government and government, yeah. you know, less government intervention and government in the bedroom. I mean, where are those people? Uh, because all we do now is see Republicans wanting to expand government, government in your lives, government in your bedroom, government in your body, especially when it comes to women. Uh, and so I'm deeply concerned about that. And that's why, you know, we have to codify uh, reproductive freedom and rights uh, into law so that, you know, uh, judicial activists uh, judges don't undermine, uh, you know, our right to privacy. 
Congressman Jared Moskowitz of D23, it is so good to have you aboard, and uh, we look forward to what you do, and you'll come back and tell us all about it uh, pretty often, I hope. Good to be with you, Glenna. Thank you. Thank you. Next, a surge in the Florida Keys of people and resources to help the neighborhoods on the front lines of incoming migrants. Is it enough? The man who runs Monroe County is here next. Coast Guard on watch off the Keys drops supplies to 14 Cuban migrants stranded on Quesal Bank. Another 83 people were repatriated to Cuba, intercepted off the Florida's coast this week. The surge of desperate people has slowed a bit. The surge of resources, federal and state, have not. This week, Senator Rick Scott was the latest lawmaker to tour the Keys portion of the National Immigration Focus. Roman Gastesi is Monroe County's administrator, the guy who keeps the keys running smoothly. And here with us live from the keys. Hi, Roman. Hi, Glenna. How are you? Really good, and it's so good to see you. I know a lot of people know that you used to, in another lifetime, be a Miami-Dade guy. <laughs> and That's now, right. Uh, and now you're in the thick of it. Um, you know, Senator Scott this week called for There's no doubt a political angle to all of this, and I know you are not involved in the politics of it. And so we, we concentrate today with you. Uh, the senator did call for more federal resources. I'd love to hear from you. Um, what do you need? Are, are the resources there adequate, and do you think they will remain so? Uh, we hope so. We, we're seeing a lot more presence of, of federal and state resources. Uh, if you look at the, the Florida Department of Environmental, excuse me, Emergency Management um, press release this week, uh, there's nearly 300 officers just in the last week or so that have been deployed down here. And that helps tremendously. And that's from FBLE, from FWC, uh, Florida Highway Patrol. Uh, so they're here. They're certainly helping out and they're relieving some of our local resources that, have, that were, were being diverted uh, to help out with the situation. Yeah, since um, I want to say probably since Christmas and especially since New Year that we we're calling it a, a surge. It almost sounds like a cliche now, but just a deluge of desperate people landing specifically in Monroe County. And we've reported on this and, you know, our Janine Stanwood has been on the front lines of what's going on as well. Um, and so we've seen the state resources. We've seen the governor do this executive order and alert the Florida National Guard. We've seen all of the federal agencies and Customs and Border Protection and the Coast Guard. And I, I'm sorry if I'm leaving anybody out, but um, but now we see the numbers this week have dropped back. Have and that's on paper. Have you seen that on the ground? Have you seen in the front lines? Is it slowing up a bit? And and why would that be? Do you know? Well, I'm not sure why, uh, but we certainly welcome it, and it has. It's severely slowed down, uh, and it's a good time for us to catch our breath and then uh, start removing some of these derelict vessels that have been left behind. That's our next uh, big challenge. Uh, there's a derelict vessel uh, task force that the state has put together. There's a lot of resources starting to come down here. I'm actually going to meet with the uh, Department of our Emergency Manager, uh, Kevin Guthrie, tomorrow. Uh, and we want to make sure that it's done correctly. Uh, there's some uh, contractors coming, uh, outside contractors coming down. They are working with our local contractors, and that's very important. I'll give you a quick example of how that's important. Just this week, the outside contractor was out with one of our local contractors and pointed to a vessel that was in the shallows and said, go get it. 
and the, our local contractor said, hmm, can't do it right now. We have to wait about five or six hours for the next high tide. Uh, so we don't ruin the seabed and the seagrasses. So those are the those are the kind of things that it's this little law, if you will, will give us a, an opportunity to go out there and start doing some of these uh, the derelict vessel removals. So that that's really interesting. I don't think as we talk about you know this is sort of a national security and a humanitarian two pronged issue. We really haven't talked about the environmental aspects of it that you bring up. That's um that's pretty eye opening. So now you you have a pot of money now from the feds to start paying for that derelict vessel removal, and I know um, the, the Key West Mayor Craig Cates had a resolution. Uh, asking for more. What What is that about? Correct. Well, you know, it's funny that you say we have a pot of money. Unfortunately, they didn't give us the money. They gave the state the money, and the state's going forward and using the, their money, and they want to get hopefully reimbursed from the federal government. Mm. Uh, I'd love for them to give us the money. Let us do it locally. As a matter of fact, that's the request. And Kevin, if you're listening, that's what I'm going to ask you tomorrow. So uh, we'd love to do it locally and use our local guys again because they know the water's better and they know what's going on. And this is what they do on a daily basis. But right now, it's a state direct uh, vessel removal task force using the locals as uh, subcontractors. Um, so we'll get it done. Uh, we certainly appreciate the help. And we'll get it done, and be, that coordination is very important again because of uh, the environmental issues. And remember, some of these these some of these vessels also have a lot of fuel on board and other things that could could be damaging to the local environment. Yeah, you know, last week we had Miami-Dade Superintendent of Schools. We have the numbers from both Miami-Dade and Broward. Um, a, a real significant uptick in children entering the schools, migrant children. Uh, no questions asked. The job is to admit and, and support and educate. I don't have the numbers from Monroe County, and, and I'm interested to hear if you have seen schools ad admitting children because from what Miami-Dade Superintendent said, a lot of these families move north, mostly to look for more affordable housing, which is where their children end up going to school. What have you seen? I haven't, I haven't uh, noticed and I haven't talked to the local superintendent, school superintendent, so I'm sorry. I just, I just don't know if there's any numbers going up. But, uh, you okay, know, you have to... fair enough. I, and just so everyone knows, I don't give away my questions and so I don't mean totally don't mean to put you on the spot but that's something that's something that we found really interesting about the trajectory of that um, another uh, another real focus for us was the sheriff's department sheriff Rick Ramsey uh, a couple of weeks ago said how much better it is to how now have the state highway patrol in so that the Monroe sheriffs can go back to doing what Monroe sheriffs do um, how is that going uh, that's going a lot better. As a matter of fact, he, he was on the radio this week and said that it's going a lot better. And just two weeks ago, I don't know if he was on your show, and a little story that he was uh, going to the radio show, um, and there was a lady that sped. He's, he's in an unmarked car. I just gave it away. Um, and somebody sped right next to him, and he stopped the lady and asked for backup because he was going to, to another appointment. There was no backup. The, his own guys couldn't back him up because there were, there were there was three migrant landings at the time. It was like two, three weeks ago when, when we had that surge. So uh, he doesn't have that anymore. Now we got about 31 uh, Florida Highway Patrolmen that are helping out, which is uh, great for, for the migrant issues. But for those that are visiting down here, uh, be careful because there's a lot of highway patrol down here. So hint, hint. <laughs> All right, so in the 30 seconds we have left, uh, you've got the platform. What more do you need? 
I think we're good right now. We're, we're you know, monitoring it. Of course, Coast Guard is, is great. They're out there monitoring it, and uh, everybody's working together. Uh, that task force is working together. There's that Homeland Security Task Force that was put together. Our emergency manager is in daily contact, sometimes more than once a day. So I think we're, we're doing well right now. Um, and see if we have a surge, uh, and if we need more resources, uh, we hope to, to get those. You'll, you'll let us know. Absolutely, and, and congratulations. Uh, you know, I think this is the first time, it is the first time since Michael retired, and you're doing a great job. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, Roman. All right, um, I think you make one of our promos. <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. Great to see you. Thanks for being with great. us. Bye-bye now. All right. All right, up next, back to the beach. Virginia Key Beach, the brewing fight over plans and promises to preserve Miami's black history. It's underway over Virginia Key Beach, Miami's historic black beach, and decades worth of plans and promises to build a museum there to focus on Miami's black history. The Miami City Commission replaced the Virginia Key Beach Trust Volunteer Board with themselves, of which only the chair, Christine King, is a black Miamian. And then a few weeks ago, they added two others to the board. Commissioner King is not joining us today as her staff says she does not do interviews via Zoom. But here is what she said at the recent meeting. It didn't strip black Miami of its voice. Black Miami still has a voice. It's time to pass the baton. Let's put some more life into trying to realize the dream of having a black museum on Virginia Key Beach. Today, Patrick Range, the former chair of the replaced trust board who unloaded at the last meeting at the change of direction. Patrick, it's good to have you on the program today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Glenna. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So at the meeting, you called the decision um, insulting. You said it insulted and disrespected the community. How so? Simply, Glenna, this volunteer board of trustees that existed um, dedicated time, talent, treasure to ensure uh, that this beach, uh, this park, and this pending museum um, would fulfill the wishes and desires of the community. Um, the community has given input over the years and for anyone to just come along and say, well, now we'll just change course and do something different uh, is unacceptable. So here is what we heard, um, the sort of disinterested public with no horse in the race. Uh, from the chair, from Chair King, and also from some of the discussion about why the board was replaced and the commission, I guess the headline is, just moved too slowly. And that this beautiful museum, which is funded by uh, the city and the county, has been, what, 20 years in the making. Um, what do you say to people who wanna just speed up the process and make it happen? I say absolutely. I say this has been the effort uh, of the former trust um, for the last 10 or so years. Uh, it seems that there have been roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Like what? Uh, what, what are those roadblocks? Uh, you certainly had, uh, well, part of the issue lies with the very city and county elected officials um, that claim that we have been holding up the process. Uh, in fact, um, 
we cannot do anything without the approval of the city and county. The county holds the, uh, the GOB dollars um, that have to be accessed for the construction of the museum, uh, and only they can say when that money is released. Uh, the city of Miami is the landowner and would be the actual recipient of the bond dollars. And so the city has to be the one to present to the county uh, whatever plan uh, that there would be for the museum in order to access the dollars. Well, let me, can I just and, ask you this, because I, I've, um, over the years, kind of covered steps and pieces. There is a beautiful rendering of a museum to be there. There are county, the, the bond dollars you talked about were contingent upon having a pot of money to operate the museum going forward, which makes sense. And now that money is there. Uh, and so that's been there since 2019. So what, what has been the holdup? Isn't that kind of the key question? Like, wh why is it so, why, where is everything? Uh, what we were in the process of at the time that, that we were removed, uh, that is the former trust, uh, we were in the process of trying to hire a consultant that we had already had on board in the past who had developed a business plan, which was at the request of the county uh, and the county came back to us and said, no, you need to revise this business plan. So we were in the process of trying to hire again this uh, uh, consultant that had been on board with us uh, to revise this business plan as the county had uh, suggested that we needed to do. Uh, and so this has kind of been uh, a microcosm of, of the process. Mm. Each step along the way, there's another, uh, another impediment, another roadblock that's put in place that we have to, uh, that we have to meet. Sounds, and, like, sounds uh, like the big B bureaucracy is at play. So let me, that, let me ask you this. The, um, yes. you know, Chair King said at the meeting, you know, we're not building hotels here. Don't worry about that. Sort of hinting that you may think there are ulterior motives. Remember that Commissioner Joe Carollo floated the idea of a, of a homeless encampment on Virginia Key. Uh, and that's actually going forward as far as last I heard. Do you think there are ulterior motives or do you trust that Chair King and the commission and these two new board members will actually do the right thing? Well, I'll just say this, Lena, you know, it, no one has, has yet to explain why it was necessary to remove the prior board. Um, and to do so with the, the, in the swift nature that, that we were removed within a month um, you know, two consecutive commission meetings, uh, we were removed. Um, this is with, you know, little explanation um, and, uh, you know, no plan in place for, you know, how they will move forward. Uh, and so that just seems very short-sighted to me. Um, the beach has been marred by efforts over the years uh, of developers that have had designs um, and, and tried to be in cahoots with city officials um, to get their development plans done. And these have included hotels, um, beach pavilion, private beach pavilions, um, and things of the sort. And you know, this is what we have been guarding against. Um, this is why the trust was created uh, back in 2000 in order to prevent things like this from happening. And even though the trust has been in place, we've still seen these proposals come forward, um, you know, over the years, uh, and and as recently as uh, a year or two ago. So it's not far-fetched in, in, in our minds that um, there could be a development play uh, here at the end of the, uh, the rainbow, so to speak. So Chair King sent a, a statement today, part of which says that we'll ensure the community's voices are heard as they are the deciders for what is up, uh, what is to come. And you and the others, you are the community. You will be involved, I'm guessing, on, on a volunteer basis as well. 
Well, as I have said uh, on multiple occasions, uh, you know, before the commission, Glenna, you know, I have no intention of going away. Uh, you know, you can remove me from the trust. Um, I will still be active in ensuring um, that this museum, that would be the first museum here in Miami-Dade County dedicated to the African-American experience and African-American history, um, I will ensure that that gets built. Um, that's my responsibility. Um, that's what the community has asked for. Uh, you know, and it's very strange, Glenna, that, you know, the county, the city can find money to give to uh, so many other projects, cultural projects for uh, this community, uh, the Perez Art Museum. Yeah, the performing we, I, I've, I've heard that argument before. That, that, that is certainly so. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. We're on a time thing here, so we got to go, but we absolutely will be in touch. Patrick Range, thanks so much. Thank you, Glenna. All right, we'll be right back. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. And remember, keep in touch.